Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we are talking about the H.P. Lovecraft story, Pickman's Model. Well, before we launch into the main topic, though, uh, you two went to UK Games Expo um, sometime in the last couple of weeks, certainly since we last recorded. Yeah, I was there for the Friday on the Chaosium stand with Mike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was running games Friday, Saturday and Sunday, uh, popping along to the stand every every so often when I've had a, a small break in my gaming uh, gaming schedule. <laughs> uh, Chaosim had a selection of slipcase hardcover 7th uh, ed books and yeah, a whole range of um, you know, products from the Glorantha stuff to the Call of Cthulhu stuff. Uh, and yeah, trade was pretty busy, even on the Friday, which I think is the quieter day. Yeah, from what I understand, the Chaosium store pretty well sold out of new Call of Cthulhu stuff, didn't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the Keeper books, definitely, and all the slipcases went as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of nice meeting people and um, getting to talk about it, and yeah, it was good. Excellent. One of the nice things about being on the stand is that we had quite a few listeners come over to us uh, while we were on the stand over at the expo. A couple of them, unfortunately, didn't get chance, much chance to say hello to. Uh, one one poor guy in particular, I remember, was uh, Tifford pointed him in, um, him in my direction while I was mid-conversation and was like, trying to desperately wrap up talking without saying, sorry, can I hold you for a second? Go and, uh, I need a clone! That's what I need. <laughs> is there any people really, like, one to do the PR side of me and one to, uh, one to do business chat. But by the time I finally got myself out of the conversation, the poor guy had uh, run away. So, sorry, I did want to have a word. <laughs> so what level of funding do you think we need to reach on the Patreon account before we can actually clone Matt? Yeah. Um, please make it another <laughs> a very soon goal, please. Well, that seems like a pretty good goal to me. Yeah, I can see there being unintended consequences. I mean, you've got to deal with all the defective clones and the prototypes and so oh, on. Oh, come on, did we oh, learn nothing from Herbert West? <laughs> I was thinking I, of Prestige when he was saying, like, defective clones. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just picturing us being knee-deep in Sanderson's next yeah. time we record. Now, there's a name for a band. <laughs> we clone them, but they're only three feet high. Yeah. Mini-me! Well, that's got to be copyright. That it? is Minions, surely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I could paint them yellow. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> God. And also, speaking of events, uh, we did mention on the show a little while back that the three of us, along with Mike Mason, are going to be at Travelling Man in Newcastle uh, in July. Now, we have heard since then that all the actual game slots have sold out, but I believe that if you want to come along and just say hi if you're in the area, that's still going to be possible. It's just, you know, the games themselves are full. So we're almost at our main topic of, of Pikmin's model, but before that... It's time for the Lovecraftian word of the meat. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, as someone needs help with pronunciation there, the Lovecraftian word of the week is... One of my favourite Muppets always says this. <laughs> Meep. How does who says that, Matt? Beaker. How does he say it? We could just fill the rest of the show with that. <laughs> so what does meep mean, Matt? Meep 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 meep. 
He'd say, now you're, un- you're undermining the horror here. <laughs> <laughs> just, just let me point it out. It's a noun with only one definition, oddly enough. A short, high-pitched sound, especially as emitted by an animal or a vehicle's horn. I want a meeping horn, damn it. My, the one of my <laughs> whose who's horn goes meep, meep. <laughs> if, it, if it can play the... Uh, they go honk. It's that one that um, Homer Simpson designed that plays the Macarena or whatever the thing is. <laughs> it's like, I want, a, I want a, hound, a sound that goes meep. Yeah. <laughs> But yes, anyway, this may not at first seem like a terribly Lovecraftian word, but considering we're talking about Pickman's model and hence ghouls, Lovecraft Lovecraft used this word an awful lot when it came to ghouls. Uh, He only uses it in two of his stories, Pickman's model and The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, but between them, you know, meep, meeping or meeped appears some 13 times. And he uses it primarily to refer to the language or the sounds that the ghouls make. And you know, it, there is this classic description uh, that he has, uh, their language being meeping and glibbering, which I, I always found fantastically evocative. And I also didn't realise until I was doing the research for this episode that I've been getting this wrong for the last 30 years. Like most of us, you read it as gibbering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, glibbering does seem to be an archaic version of gibbering, uh, or at least an archaic word meaning babbling, and I'm sure it's the same root as gibbering. Lovecraft's never one to shy away from using an unusual version of, a, a, well, a regular or unusual word, because the, the word, I'm not sure if you say it show or shoe, but he, he spells show in this story at least twice with S-H-E-W. Oh, yeah, well, a lot more than twice in this. Yeah. yeah. But yes, I always found that a fantastically evocative description. I mean, it, it sounds... It's its one of these things that sounds almost silly at first. You know, you picture this meeping and glibbering sound. But on the other hand, you know, considering the source of it and the fact that it, you know, it lends itself to a description of some, some talk or some, some sounds of language that are completely inhuman, it, it is actually slightly unnerving. I think the fact that meeping sounds, it doesn't sound particularly threatening. But when you know what's meeping, it's yeah. kind of worrying. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's that moment when you say you hear this kind of meeping sound from the... Well, why are you running back and back along the tunnel already? <laughs> what, I haven't even finished the description. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not just this meeping sound, this sinister meeping. <laughs> meep. <laughs> meep. Meep, meep, Anyway, let's take a look at how Lovecraft himself used the word meep. Our first excerpt from The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Javelins began to fly from both sides, and the swelling meeps of the ghouls and the bestial howls of the almost humans gradually joined the hellish whine of the flutes to form a frantic and indescribable chaos of demon cacophony. And another entry from Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. At the insistent meeping of the ghoulish leaders, there issued forth from each lofty burrow a stream of horned black flyers, with which the ghouls and night gaunts of the party conferred at length by means of ugly gestures. And from Pickman's Model. A man he had known in Boston... A painter of strange pictures with a secret studio in an ancient and unhallowed alley near a graveyard had actually made friends with the ghouls and had taught him to understand the simpler part of their disgusting, meeping and glibbering. 
now we discuss Pickman's model. Well, Pickman's model is probably one of the earlier of Lovecraft's major stories. Well, I say major, it's not that long a story, but in terms of the impact that it's had, it's, it's, it's certainly a significant one. It was written in September of 1926 and published in the October 27 issue of Weird Tales. It's another story that was actually anthologised, in, in this case, twice in Lovecraft's lifetime. So it was one of his more successful ones, really. This is an unusual Lovecraft story in a lot of ways. One of the things that really jumped out to me as being very unusual for Lovecraft is the narrator has a name. Yeah, we learn it later. He's called Thurston. Thurber. Thurber, that too. But it's not just the fact that he's got a name. The whole presentation of this story is very unusual for Lovecraft in that it's colloquial, uh, it's informal, uh, or at least as informal as Lovecraft gets. This is a character who is verbally recounting his experiences to his friend Elliot. And, uh, I mean, it's even weirder than that, because part of the experiences that he's recounting, as we'll see a bit later on in the story, are things that in turn have been told to him by Pickman. And so we have these nested narratives, and quite often it's not always that easy to tell where one starts and another ends. And it's like a transcription of his dialogue with somebody else, because there's, there's moments when he says, another drink, old pal, you know, and it's like, you know, do you want a coffee? And there's, there's these sort of... Um inserts into it which just make it feel like you are sat down with him and he's kind of recounting it to you unlike dagon where it's a letter or it's a written almost like the equivalent of 1920s found footage that it's you are reading someone else's document this definitely is a it's a departure from the normal style definitely yeah but on the other hand like much of lovecraft's uh, fiction there is no real sense of immediacy to it it's still a recounted remote tale this isn't, you know, this isn't a writer describing events as they're happening. You needn't think I'm crazy, Elliot. Plenty of others have queerer prejudices than this. So in that first opening line, we get the sense that he's saying, I'm not mad, you know. It's, it's this setup once more. So, he, you know, we're punched with that in the very opening line. And then in the first couple of paragraphs, he mentions that I fancy I'm lucky to be sane at all. And to be fair, there is no better way of convincing someone that you're mad by than telling them that you're not mad. <laughs> I passed my sand check. I told you, I passed it. <laughs> well, we learn fairly quickly um, that Thurber has developed a fear of subterranean places. And again, from a gaming perspective, this is fantastic. This is uh, an example of a character, a Call of Cthulhu investigator, who has failed his sound check and got a phobia out of it. So our narrator, Thurber, it actually states that he's afraid to go underground into cellars or the subway. And yeah, he's, he's, he's got a phobia, definitely. As well as underground places, so the other thing that he's avoiding is Richard Upton Pickman. Uh, who is an artist of his acquaintance, uh, and also apparently of Elliot's acquaintance. They were part of the same art circle or art club. And uh, I, Thurber gives all sorts of reasons why people shun Pickman, you know, mostly because of the uh, rather unsavoury content of his paintings, but also because he as an individual tends to disquiet people, because he looks funny. But he's, at least his paintings are of very high quality. Maybe a little bit too high quality. Yes. But they're, they're of subjects... I mean, we discover more about them as the story goes on. But from the outset, it's said that they're of subjects which basically polite society will not want to see. Well, I know like local art societies, they tend to be 
you know, um, very polite, uh, you know, watercolours of local scenes. And I'm thinking of the, the Buckingham Art Society. Uh, I mean, there's some nice stuff, but it's it tends to be kind of pastoral and um, portraits and landscapes and things like this. There aren't many people doing like graphic horror pictures in that kind of club. Almost reminds me a little bit to the um, the story we had a look at a little while ago, Sticks, with the... Um, I'm sure it was that where there's yeah, the... Yeah, I, I thought kind of, of that too, yeah. Yeah, the horrific quality of the art was shunned because of its... Yes. Yeah. But we get... We also get a reflection back to the music of Eric Zahn when our narrator tells us that uh, where he visited Pickman's studio, he wouldn't be able to find that again, even if, if he wanted to. If he went back there, it was through a maze of twisted streets and up a hill, uh, and, and he just doesn't think he'd be able to, to locate it. And there's an interesting note um, from one of Lovecraft's letters to Donald Wandry in which... He recounts having uh, wanted to, to show Wandry when he visits the, the, the place that inspired this. And indeed, when he gets there, it's been cleared. All mm. there is, is is open space where the tottering old houses and zigzag alley windings had been. So it is like his fiction became truth there. <laughs> well, the ghouls realise the game's up, that they've got to move on. Yeah. <laughs> but although... Pickman's subject matter is so repellent and repulsive to people. Thurber is quite adamant about the fact that Pickman is one of the finest artists, if not the finest artist he's ever known. Thurber is actually working on a monograph about weird art and has made Pickman pretty much the subject of this monograph. Thurber actually tries to pin down what it is that makes Pickman so great. And this comes across in the text this way. You know... It takes profound art and profound insight into nature to turn out stuff like Pigman's. Any magazine cover hack can splash paint around wildly and call it a nightmare, or Witch's Sabbath, or a portrait of the devil. But only a great painter can make such a thing really scare or ring true. That's because only a real artist knows the actual anatomy of the terrible or the physiology of fear, the exact sort of lines and proportions that connect up with latent instincts or hereditary memories of fright, and the proper colour contrasts and lighting effects to stir the dormant sense of strangeness. And this sort of ties in a bit with some of the stuff that Lovecraft himself was writing about in supernatural horror and literature at the time, uh, which is this idea that in order to have a really successful horror or weird tale, that it had to be rooted in the real world. or it, yeah, that There had to be this, this realistic construction to it to act as a contrast or, um, or, or to bring out the weirder aspects of them and make them more compelling and more believable. It makes them stand out more that, as they say, there is more of a contrast. And I think this is something that yeah, we, we see as a, a, a defining precept of a lot of the Call of Cthulhu scenarios in the same way. that you know, They tend to be rooted very much in the real world just so the unreal aspects become that much starker. Yeah, you, you get a real event in history that they'd be used as a backdrop to or you have the occasional um, real-life NPC that's dropped in to, again, to give it that degree of familiarity. Uh, he goes on to say uh, that Pickman manages to turn out results that differ from the pretentious mince pie dreams uh in just uh, it what are, what are mince pie dreams I, I have them every christmas 
Yeah. <laughs> what the hell is that? It's like you've had too many of them. That's all you think about. I don't know if Americans, when they talk about mince pies, do they mean the same kind of um, sweet mince pies that we have, or is it like... Uh, not these days, no. But on the other hand, you know, Lovecraft being an Anglophile and this being, you know, some time back, maybe it was like British mince pies. Mm. It just made me think of, like, Carlos Castaneda taking peyote and having these weird dreams and so on, that, 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 that Pickman was eating mince pies and going into some sort of hallucinatory state. I don't know. It just seemed bizarre to me. Eating snorting, mince. snorting lines of icing sugar. Eating mince pies turns you into a ghoul. But I think you have missed the trick here. There's there's a line as well, just before what we've come to, where he's where he's telling uh, Elliot about you know about what's happened, and he's kind of setting it all up. And he's told us that you know don't believe I'm mad. Pickman painted very realistic uh, things. You won't find the place even if we go looking for it. But there's a line here. He says, and I think you'll understand when I'm through why I didn't. Tell the police. <laughs> See, he didn't call the police. Well, that's where he went wrong. That's why he failed his sand check. You know? <laughs> Think of it. The police could have spared him from all this phobia nonsense. He would have all been fine. <laughs> so instead, here he is sat in... I kind of almost picture him in a gentleman's club, you know, sort of uh, mm. chatting this over and explaining it to Elliot. Well, I mean, there are several references in the narrative to, you know, having a drink or, uh, I think, various alcoholic drinks. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's probably not even a gentleman's club because this is during Prohibition. So either a speakeasy or someone's home, I assume. Oh, of course. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And we get several implications in the text that Pickman, there's something odd about Pickman. Mm. It says, he talks about him and then says, if he was a man. And then he says... Pickman repelled him more and more every day. His features and expression were changing. And he links it potentially to Pickman's diet. Yes. <laughs> yes, he does. Mm. So those damn mince pies again. <laughs> and then, of course, Pickman disappears. And so, you know, all this shunning, you know, becomes a bit academic because Pickman's gone. Of course, Pickman isn't really gone from you know, Lovecraft as a whole, because, as we've mentioned, we do come across him later in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. And the Pikmin that we meet there, yeah, the, the little hints that we've seen that he's not quite human, they bear fruit in this. Uh, yes, he is very far from human when we meet him again. I think it's probably the only instance where I can think of, apart from obviously the gods and the mon uh, monster instances, where a character, oh, obviously Randolph Carter, um, a character transitions between multiple stories. It's quite unusual. Yeah, yeah. So, as we've mentioned, you know, Thurber has been working on this monograph about weird art, and he has developed this friendship with Pickman as a result. And Pickman decides to let him into a few of his secrets. And this involves Pickman inviting Thurber to his studio. This studio is hidden away in Boston's North End, which is a slum. I, this is you know, fairly typical Lovecraft in that you know, Lovecraft gives us an idea of how bad he thinks it is because the area probably hasn't been seen by more than three Nordic men. So therefore, you, mu you know, it must be horrific. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. Oh <laughs> Shocking. Um, but, yeah, in fact, the description he gives of it is, you know, networks of alleys north of Prince Street that aren't suspected by ten living beings outside of the foreigners that swarm them. 
mean, thank God in this enlightened day and age, we no longer refer to foreigners as swarms. Can you imagine what would happen if we had a, a leading politician in this country referring to, you know, foreigners or immigrants as swarms? I mean, that, that's just unthinkable. That wouldn't yeah. happen, Scott. No, no. We'd, we'd be at breaking point. Yeah. He talks about some underground tunnels that lie beneath the North End as well, that apparently uh, go between some of these really old houses, which are two or three centuries old, uh, and link the burying ground to the houses, to the coast where they used to be smuggling. And you know, this set me in mind of the house I grew up in. <laughs> but you, had, you had tunnels under your house? Yeah, apparently. Oh, okay. My father swore that... There was a tunnel that went... We lived in a, an old mill house that's apparently referred to in the Doomsday Book uh, as there being a mill there. And parts of the house were really, really hundreds of years old. And there apparently there was a cellar, and apparently my father had it... There was a tunnel that went from the cellar across to the Franciscan... What would have been a Franciscan monastery about half a mile away. Was there a graveyard there? I'm not sure. There isn't now, but being picked clean but there, is, there is a housing estate there so there must be you know obviously an indian burial ground under it of course you only moved the headstones he's <laughs> <laughs> like a quote vending machine yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but the thing that is weird to me is i grew up in that house i moved into the house when i was one and a half so just a baby a toddler and i left when i was 18 and I used to go down in the um, in this back. It was a big old house. There was, there was this back room with a, a pool table in it and just full of junk and crap and a uh, workbench and so on. And there was a little room off that in which I used to convert it into a, a shabby kind of dark room. And then there were these planks of wood which covered the cellar. <laughs> and did you every now and then hear strange scratching noises coming from beneath? I never went down there. I spent loads of time in that room on my own because um, most of my time as a kid was on my own. I never went down there. And I always think back, looking back now, I think, why didn't I just, because they were just loose planks, why didn't I just lift them up, go down the stone steps into the cellar? I just can't believe that <laughs> I wasn't curious enough to do that. Is this still the same house where your mother lives now? No. Oh. No, no. My family left when I was about 19. Right. Um, it just, it. No just, road trip. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I was going to suggest driving down there now. But. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm tempted to go back and sort of chat to the guy and ask if I can go down there, but then, you know, it would kind of um, break the mystery. But, um, I mean, I'm sure the, the tunnel wasn't kind of extant and kind of actually in use, but uh, it'd just be interesting to have seen down there. Just, mm. It baffles me why I never went in there. And, of course, it's not just smugglers and privateers that use these, these tunnels. Uh, according to the narrative, it was also used by witches to escape from the Puritans. And this is something that ends up, I was about to say, feeding into the rest of the story. But... <laughs> I was going to say, if they, wanted to, if they wanted to escape the witch trials, all they needed to do was draw some series of lines and curves on the, um, the cell wall. We know, that, we know mm. that works just as well. Who needs tunnels? Lovecraft builds a picture here for us, and there's lots of small inferences that we can take from the text about no buyer can be found for Pickman's picture entitled Ghoul Feeding. Uh, and now it's with Pickman's father in Boston. And then he talks about the family coming from old Salem stock and that there, there was a witch hanged 
1692 that was some kind of distant relative. So it's all kind of building up and he, he talks about ghosts and, and so on. It just kind of starts to evoke this feeling of, of terror. And this is revisited you know, a little bit later in the story where we actually come across one of Pigman's paintings of a witch being hanged and the witch has, shall we say, somewhat inhuman features. Uh, inhuman features which bear a, a notable family resemblance to Pickman himself. It's about in this this point in the story where, as you're reading it, it switches. It switched, and and I was like, oh, hold on, who's talking now? Oh, this is Pickman talking, and he's recounting a quote from Pickman, and Pickman uses the name Thurber, and it's like, hold on, who's Thurber? Oh, oh, that's the narrator. So it it it's it. Some yeah, like you said, Scott, is an is unusual kind of structure. Mm. It's a little Easter egg as well that you you fact you find it that late on. Yeah, one of the last bits we hear from the narrator before he hands over the narrative to Pickman himself, though, is just this last little bit about the alleyways they're going through. When we did turn, it was to climb through the deserted length of the oldest and dirtiest alley I had ever seen in my life, with crumbling-looking gables, broken small-paned windows, and archaic chimneys that stood out half-disintegrated against the moonlit sky. I don't believe there were three houses in sight that hadn't been standing in Cotton Mather's time. Certainly I glimpsed at least two with an overhang, and once I thought I saw a peaked roof line of the almost forgotten pre-Gambrel type, though antiquarians tell us there are none left in Boston. Isn't this fantastic? When you read the word Gambrel in Lovecraft, I didn't know what it meant originally, and it, but it kind of evokes a, a sense of, uh, of, of the old and the strange. And this is pre-Gambrel. Mm. It's old. It's like antediluvian old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, in practice, all it means is they had peaked roofs. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> like regular roofs. <laughs> How to completely downplay that and just destroy the mystery? Or, or Come on. Post Gambrel. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gambrels, are, you know, they aren't quite peaked roofs. They, they, you know, they've got this sort of bend in the middle. Yeah. Really. But these, but these pre Gambrel ones, Gambrel, yeah. we yeah. had pre Gambrel, like, yeah. regular roofs. <laughs> They didn't have these strange gambrel dog legs in them. What? Oh, right. Okay, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I was picturing Hori on the Express there with the thing getting up and running around <laughs> with the dog legs. Oh, right. Yeah, the the chicken legs. legs. Chicken legs. Yeah. Colonel Sanders' haunted house. <laughs> so you're saying KFC originated from Baba Yaga? <laughs> <laughs> So he gets to Pickman's place and goes in and there are pictures on the wall that clearly Pickman couldn't show at the Boston Art Club. I think it's um, they sound quite fun, kind of interesting pieces, personally. <laughs> They're the kind of thing James Radji would love to get his hands on. Exactly. It's like you, op you open up a copy of Lamentations, you can think this would be illustrated by Pickman. <laughs> yeah. But yes, every one of these pictures involves ghouls. And yeah, this is where we start getting our first real descriptions of ghouls, as being these bipedal humanoid figures with hooved feet, uh, canine features, and this sort of loathsome, rubbery skin. And one of the most important aspects of these paintings is the fact they start revealing the relationship between ghouls and humans. And this is revealed in a number of different ways. I mean, we've already mentioned the fact that Pickman himself is of a slightly ghoulish cast, and certainly, you know, other members of his family were. But then we start seeing other aspects too, 
we see that the the sort of old fairy changeling myths are there and present with the ghouls. The ghouls will take away human babies and replace them with one of their own. Uh, we see that instead of using these human babies they take as light snacks, uh, they actually raise them as one of their own. And there's this wonderful description in there, there was this one thing called the lesson, heaven pity me, that I ever saw it. Listen, can you fancy a squatting circle of nameless dog-like things in a churchyard teaching a small child how to feed like themselves? And yeah, that's not a graphic description, but it's actually really quite an unsettling one. Especially when you fill in the gaps with... Um, what you know later about ghouls, mm. that are particularly about what they feed on. Yes. Yeah, there's yeah, there's, there's a lovely imagery there. <laughs> and that, isn't a ra- that isn't a baby's rattle that it's playing with. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he, he continues a bit further on um, that the dog things were developed from mortals. So that these ghouls, you know, probably started out in some respect as humans. Almost oh, I all think of them. very much yeah. so, yeah, yeah. That through their unsavoury appetites, they have become these monsters. After this, they move into another room which has more contemporary painting or more contemporary settings for the paintings. Um, one of which, when I read it, I had to smile because I um, think back to uh, one of the Delta Green supplements, um, Countdown, that details the ghoul community that lives in underneath New York and how it's connected with um, connected with the subway system, mm. and just the the impression of ghouls swarming over the sub uh, over the subway trains, and quite uh, quite topical as I've recently finished watching uh, the Clive Barker film Midnight Meat Train, oh, which yes. was uh, <laughs> rather apt for that. <laughs> yes, and there, there's another lovely little bit in here, which is the, you know, one of the paintings that really affronts uh, Thurber here, and and Thurber is actually quite disturbed by all of this because I mean, you know up to this point he's he's been you know a, a little upset by some of the implications and the, the the depictions, but he sort of held himself together. But now that he's seeing the stuff in a contemporary setting, you know he's getting more and more unnerved, and you know that that, that subway one in particular seemed to you know get to him. But he talks about one that that um, you know, particularly got to him, which almost sounds quite comic. And it says um, that the painting shows ghouls laughing, laughing over a Boston guidebook that states Holmes, Lowell and Longfellow lie buried in Mount Auburn. And they did. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah, I mean, that's obviously the implication that, yes, well, they, they were there once, but, yeah, they're now in our bellies. But <laughs> it also occurred to me that um, we had this description of ghouls, you know, the, in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook, you know, most monsters and NPCs and so on have a, one li- you know, a little one-line tagline that goes after their name. And the, uh, the description of ghouls in Call of Cthulhu is mocking charnel feeders. And I, nothing really kind of summed up this idea of mocking charnel feeders to me quite so much as that one image of the three of them sitting there laughing over the, uh, over the various celebrities they've eaten. <laughs> <laughs> Longfellow tasted like chicken. <laughs> so Pickman leads Thurber down into the cellar, and we've already had this set up about the tunnels under the houses, so it's no great surprise when they go down there and they find a stone well... And it's covered with some rotting boards. Um, and, you know, Thurber, I don't think, wants to, to look in it, but he just sort of comments that it's there. And then uh, I think there are more paintings. 
And he sees a camera sat on a table, perhaps in the next room. Well, they're not just paintings. This is his studio. This is the, these are his works in progress. So there are things like the sketches that he's... I, uh, in fact, you know, Thurper makes a point of, uh, of saying that the, the sketches or the works in progress are being done with, some, with such exactitude that they must be drawn from life. Uh, and indeed, he yeah. uses the camera to capture backgrounds for, for reference. Yes. Um, which, you know, that's a, a common enough practice. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's one of these reference photographs that's pinned to this one canvas that Pickman is working on at the time. And this, this one canvas is, um, you know, it, it is, it's a big, big painting. And the description of it, you know, is one of my favourite bits of the story. I'll, I'll just read this out. It was a colossal and nameless blasphemy with glaring red eyes, and it held in bony claws a thing that had once been a man, gnawing at the head as a child nibbles at a stick of candy. His position was a kind of crouch, and as one looked, one felt that at any moment it might drop its present prey and seek a juicier morsel. I am not taking candy from that baby. <laughs> It's, it is almost reminiscent of um, the old... I think they started off as Grafton and then they got reprinted by HarperCollins um, editions of the collections of H.P. Lovecraft, the paperbacks over, over here, where at least one of them involves this terrible creature that sat on the front, this huge belly, um, just picking up uh, people. Uh, they're all naked in these pictures, I don't know why. <laughs> um, picking them up and then just uh, biting away. Yeah, I think there's another one falling above him, and that, that's the mm. book that I first read. And it's kind of like some hideous, bloated, almost like Jabba the Hutt type figure. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's the. I think that's the third one for the one that's Haunter in the Dark and others. Yeah, well, it's got this story in it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a more famous uh, version of, uh, depicting this exact picture, uh, which was done by the pulp artist Hannes Bock. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, it's titled Pigma's Model, and yeah, I'll see whether I can find uh, a copy of it online to link to in the show notes. But it it shows this... I, it, it certainly shows the sort of canine cast of the gore, but it's it's got almost leonine features. It's got a mane of hair. And it's this monstrous, hooved figure that's crouching down, holding this entire human body in one claw. You know, the, the, the human body is about the size of its arm, and, you know, it's just chewing on this, this poor person. Mm. Super ghoul. Mm. Now, when Thurber sees this picture, he can't help himself. He cries out in terror. And after a few moments, there's, there's a noise from the next room. And Pickman says, well, he, he draws a, a revolver. And it's like he says, hold on a minute. And he steps into the next room and shuts the door. But while this was going on, Thurber had actually sort of absentmindedly picked up the, uh, the photograph that was pinned to this picture, sort of thinking, oh, I must take a look at this. But it was rolled up, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, that's just, right. Just yeah, he's going to straighten it out and take a look. But of course, you know, as soon as Pickman draws a gun, he's distracted. That would distract you. And then he goes into the next room and he fires off six shots in rapid succession. Yeah. Five rounds this, rapid. Well, we don't, know, we don't know at what, but apparently they heard some meeping and glibbering. Hmm. 
And, dear God, Lovecraft's characters like doing this, don't they? If, if they get a revolver, you know they're going to fire all six bullets at someone. Yeah, there's just going to be click, 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 click eventually. <laughs> because, I mean, we, we get this in The Thing on the Doorstep. Uh, we get this in Herbert West Reanimator and, and here as well. You know, I've got a revolver, it's got six shots, and it just bang, 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 bang. <laughs> yeah, and people say there's no room for, like, guns in Call of Cthulhu, or that it's gone wrong when the guns come out, but here they are. <laughs> the implication is whatever it was he was scaring it off in fact pickman says that he was scaring off rats but yeah i i, I wanted as well i mean is this the origin in the call of cthulhu rules of uh ghouls being so resistant to bullets because you know pickman's gone out there you know emptied this revolver and you know there's no trace of the ghoul when um when thurber goes back out but if it was down the well then there wouldn't be that's kind of what I was picturing, but yeah, I, I sort of pictured it because you know we've heard the sounds of the boards mm. being moved apart that had actually come mm. up, and I, I, I'd, I'd sort of pictured it as yeah, maybe he did have to shoot it, and the yeah you know, the ghoul had just looked at oh okay yes if you must, and then buggered off again. <laughs> so we have them leaving, and they they kind of make their way through some of these twisted alleys, and they part, and our narrator says they they parted. I never spoke to him again. I never spoke to Pickman again. That was it. So we know that it's being set up here, that there's, there's a, a parting of ways. And it all comes down to this photograph that Thurber picked up. And Thurber describes the fact that, you know, before he says what's on it, the fact that he burnt it. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, if get we, rid we, of the evidence, why don't we? We've yeah. got to set it up. I mean, Lovecraft's got to set this up. So that you've got all the information before you get the final line. Yeah. Well, the last section of the story itself reads, Well, that paper wasn't a photograph of any background after all. What it showed was simply the monstrous being he, had, he was painting on that awful canvas. It was the model he was using, and its background was merely the wall of the cellar studio in minute detail. But by God, Elliot, it was a photograph from life! And that is a classic last line. I mean, Lovecraft was really good at building up to these last lines. Yeah. And, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, if you've been given so much information about what's going on, that it's not really a revelation. But at the same time, it is deeply satisfying. And I think it surprised me a little. It, it kind of added to the, the disturbance of that, that, that Thurber, the narrator... We know that he's been in that studio, and it's not just that there's a photograph of a monster. Mm. The photograph of the monster was taken in that room where he was stood. Yes. <laughs> I, and in a lot of respects, then, that, that almost makes this a parallel to what Lovecraft does later on in The Shadow of Rinsmith, that you've got this character, you know, who is human but with strange features, who is gradually over time turning into something kind of monstrous and immortal and alien. Um, yeah, that, that's part of his family tree, part of his heritage, um, mm. and and he is growing into you know what he you know what he will eventually become. Mm-hmm. Next, let's take a look at adaptations of Pickman's model. Now, possibly because this is one of Lovecraft's more straightforward horror stories, is quite a well adapted one. Must admit, I've never seen an adaptation of it. Oh, right. Well, I when I was a kid, I was a huge fan of Night Gallery. Night Gallery was on TV when I was about 10 or 11. 
And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it was sort of the follow-up to The Twilight Zone. It it was presented by Rod Serling, and the the, the sort of framing sequence for it was that for every story that... And they quite often have two or three stories in an episode, an hour-longer episode. But for each story they did, they'd introduce it with a painting that was related to it and and Serling pointing to the painting and saying something about it, as if, you know, he were going through an art gallery. Quite quite and, appropriate, given this story. And, <laughs> yeah, Pigman's model was, was a you know, very obvious choice for it in, you know, in that respect, because, yeah, it is all about paintings. And it was one of three Lovecraft adaptations... Oh, sorry, one of two straight Lovecraft adaptations, one Lovecraft-inspired story that they did there. Because my, you know, one of my very early introductions to Lovecraft was the adaptation of Cool Air that they did on Night Gallery. I was hoping you were going to say Mr. Uh, Professor Peabody's last lecture, because that would have been a fantastic way to <laughs> No, no, it was Cool Air, which scared the shit out of me at the time. Uh, but yeah, Professor Peabody's last lecture was just magnificent. This was their Lovecraft pastiche. And while the other two were fairly serious, this one was very tongue-in-cheek. But but going back to Pickman's model, the adaptation of Pickman's model on Night Gallery was interesting, and it, you know, it was an early example of Lovecraft being put on screen. Unfortunately, it's not very good. Um, it oh, it, it does a couple of interesting things. Uh, the Thurber character in this is replaced by a uh, a young woman who is an art student uh, who is learning from Pickman and learning his secrets. But the problem is that, you know, they didn't really have the budget to do a decent-looking ghoul, and it is, you know, very obviously a man in a rubber suit, and it just uh. looks a bit crap. And the writing in the episode isn't great, and, you know, all in all, it is, is a disappointment. That's Can't a really recommend it. More recently, you know, the Lurker Films H.P. Lovecraft collections, which are fantastic. Uh, these DVDs, they put out five of them, I think. Yeah, this is the, the Pickman's ones on the fourth one, I think. That's right, yes. And, yeah, the, each one of them is a collection of short films, or, you know, occasionally a feature, uh, that revolve around a particular Lovecraft story. And, yeah, they did um, a whole DVD full of uh, adaptations of Pickman's model. The main one on there is a Chilean film called Chilean Gothic. Uh, which um, I mean, it's some years since I've seen this, and my memories are vague. But I, I do remember it as being very atmospheric. Again, a very free adaptation of Pickman's model, but you know that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, it's it's done as much more of a mystery, um, and they they do something you know relatively clever with it as well, which is they they sort of show hints of the pictures and you you, you sort of see them you know from a distance or out of focus or when the camera's moving past, but you you know, you're told about the effects of them and how powerful they are, but you don't really kind of see them directly, which I think works very well for a film. That pretty much describes my experience of having that um, DVD up on my shelf for the last god knows how many years and not ever having chance to watch it. <laughs> I've got all five of the volumes, but this is the only one where I haven't opened it. Oh, right. Okay, no, no, it, it is good. I mean, there's there's also an animated, very short version of Pigman's model on there. Um, and I'm struggling to remember what the other ones are. It's, like I say, it's a few years since I've seen this. But I do remember it as being one of the better out of the, the Lovecraft collections. Hmm. Finally, there's a, a film which I reviewed on Blasphemous Tomes as part of the uh, October horror movie challenge a few years ago. I'll, I'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes. Um, but a film called Pickman's Muse. 
And it's, it's kind of unusual in that it's not really an adaptation of Pigman's model. It's, it's an adaptation of The Haunter in the Dark. What? But, but the protagonist is Richard Upton Pigman. Um, so in it, Pigman is, um, is looking for inspiration for his rather uncanny and otherworldly paintings and ends up going to the old starry wisdom church and encountering the shining trapezohedron and so on you know, in his search for inspiration. That's a really weird cross. Um, but yeah, again, one of the good things about this is that you never actually see any of the paintings. That what what the filmmaker does, which I you know works so well, is that you, you get you get to see the backs of the canvases that he's working on, and every now and then you'll have a supporting character who will see them and just be so affronted and shocked and repelled by what they see that you get that that very visceral reaction to it without the anticlimax of actually seeing it yourself on the screen because nothing that you know you can put on the screen would ever convey that wrongness of course ghouls are a regular staple in call of cthulhu scenarios i think because they form a a kind of human level adversary there's something that you can pit your players against that they might be able to take on um even potentially you know in in hand-to-hand combat let alone with firearms Having said that, you know, they are pretty mean adversaries uh, and they form the backbone of uh, at least one campaign that I can think of. Yeah, and I think one of the things that makes Ghouls interesting in a game of Call of Cthulhu like that is something that's not in this story, which is the use of the Consume Lightness spell, uh, which is something... I, I don't know where that came from in the first place. It's connected as well with Serpent People, because um, yeah. I know that it's a staple spell of theirs. But I don't know if this is something that was invented entirely for the game or whether it came out of a story. Because, I mean, you've certainly got certain people shapeshifters in uh, Robert E. Howard's Cole stories, King Cole. Um, and, you know, that, that, I think that's the first time we encounter that, that sort of aspect of them. And I suppose it could just be that someone kind of picked up on that and applied it to ghouls as well. Yeah, they did. It's in some of the Delta Green fiction collections, uh, it's a while, it's a few years since I've read it and I can't remember exactly which one. I mean, there's only a few collections. It's one of the early ones. And there's, uh, so it's a modern day Delta Green uh, setting and it's one of the Delta Green agents that gets the Cult de Ghoul, the book. And she's, as I recall, she does start turning into a ghoul. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 that was kind of inspired me as to how to play ghouls, definitely. And of course, the other place in gaming they've turned up uh, f- is the um, the Fallout series of video games. Except the ghouls there aren't exactly Lovecraftian ghouls. Uh, they're you know people who have been affected by radiation sickness and developed a rather ghoulish cast. But uh, but they're referred to in the game as ghouls, and as a sort of nod to Lovecraft. Um, there is, in fact, a, a section of Fallout Four involving ghouls, which is set around a place called the Pikmin Gallery. And what can we steal for gaming from Pikmin's model? Well, early on, we had an example of an investigator, our narrator, who had developed a phobia. I mean, clearly, he had lost some sand points from this. We have him crying out, you know, an involuntary reaction as a result of a failed sand roll. Several times. Several times when seeing these photographs. Uh, uh, well, photograph and the paintings. Um, and we have his phobia of going underground. 
you know, mm. it's directly related to his seeing that, what happened on the subway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, notably, our narrator hasn't read any tomes, which is quite yeah. a common thing in this kind of story. Yes, yeah. In fact... I mean, this is potentially one of the interesting things about this story, which is obviously people have woven ghouls into the larger mythos. And, yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely the connection there in Dreamquest of Unknown Kadath. But, yeah, from Pickman's model, there is really no connection with the larger mythos here. No, what we have a connection with is Cotton Mather and uh, the, the, the witch trials uh, and, you know, ghosts and, and so on. But... There's no connection with... There's no mention of any mythos tomes. There's nobody shouts Shubnigarath or... Uh, there's there's, there's no none gods. of that. No. no, Nothing cosmic. No. So there's no... We can't kind of extrapolate from this into the wider mythos as we often can with these stories. When I was reading back over this story, I, one of the things that... that, that occurred to me, and you know, this again goes back perhaps to that Hannes Bock picture I was talking about earlier, which is the idea of that ghoul that was posing for Pickman in his last uh, painting there. That is not a human-sized creature. If you're I, holding a human, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, certainly, I mean, when Bock drew it, you know, it, it was very, very much larger. I mean, the human body, as I mentioned before, was about the size of the creature's arm. I mean, you can read the description in the story a few different ways, but it certainly does seem to imply that it's this monstrously large creature, which, you know, the, the rest of the ghouls that have been described aren't. I mean, you know, and Pikmin is obviously human-sized. But it's, it does seem to imply that there are, you know, perhaps older or more monstrous types of ghouls, maybe ones that have grown more into their true nature, that aren't just these these sort of it's, semi-human things. I can't bring the Hannes Bock one to, to mind, but is it like the Goya painting of the, the old figure kind of eating the, yes. the, the youthful so, one? Saturn eating his, his child, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah which, I, which I can't help thinking yeah. is, is kind of an inspiration here. Definitely. Um, and, you know, we talked about that, that picture on the cover of the Grafton book, which I think we should put on the show notes as well. I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic image. But to have a character so large wouldn't it doesn't feel feasible that it would have been in that house because we we we've shown the photograph and it shows the background so presumably you know it could be maybe 10 feet tall but it's it's hard to picture something so massive if it was taken yeah. in Pickman studio we don't really know how big Pickman studio is but i imagine it's you know it's one of those really old houses it's probably not so massive um, I mean, the creature is described as hunching in the picture. Mm, right, right. So, yeah. So it's, certainly, why can't ghouls be, you know, whatever size you want them to be? Yeah. But I, I'm not entirely sure I've ever seen a, a use of ghouls in Call of Cthulhu, you know, the, the, that are larger than human size. No, I, I can't think of any. Another interesting aspect of this, I think, is the fact that Lovecraft is fairly blatant about handing out the clues and the hints and so on here. Um, that, you know, as I said earlier, that you know, by the time you get to that final revelation in the last line, it's not really a revelation. You know, he's laid out all the pieces there for you. Um, uh, you know, he's, he's stated that you know, Pickman doesn't look human, that he's changing. He talks about the ghoulish casts in the picture. Uh, and he talks about... Um, his use of live models, even you know, or potential use of live models earlier in the uh, earlier in the story, and so that got me thinking very much about how parsimonious we can be with clues 
uh, in the game. Clues, but subtle clues, I think. But some of these aren't that subtle. I'd, I'd say it's more a case of that there's a clue there, but you don't necessarily understand what it means at the time. It's like the, the instance where they're looking over the guidebook and going, ha ha ha, that you don't necessarily understand the fact that that could just be their giggling thinking, oh, maybe they're that old that they, they knew these people. Maybe that they know the facts are wrong. But you don't necessarily equate to, the, oh, yeah, we're actually going underground and eating them. It's it's presenting something in such a way that it doesn't mean anything as yet. But once you have that little piece of the puzzle to make it complete later, that it's that realisation of, oh, so that's what it meant. And it's there's a sense of... I mean, I, I don't think it's as obvious as you make it, Scott. I think now I read it, and it also seems pretty obvious, but the first time I read it, um, it wasn't to me. Hmm. And I think... There's a sense that if he just hits us with that out of the blue at the end, it's it it's like oh okay well I didn't realise that was going to happen that that's kind of freakish, but when he set up all these subtle and maybe not so subtle kind of indications and so on, you it's perhaps a um, we've had it kind of foreshadowed but not made blatant to us, and then when we have it shown to us at the end that, you know, it was a picture from life, all these things suddenly sort of fall into place. And it's like, oh, it's almost in the back of your mind. You've kind of realised that already, perhaps. Hmm. But now it's kind of... Um, it just makes it feel more convincing somehow. There was a kind of a dread building up. Certainly, this was the first Lovecraft story I read. A friend, um, Phil, back in Plymouth lent it to me one day and said, you know, you should read some Lovecraft. So I kind of leafed through that Grafton book and picked a short one. And yeah, it was this story. And I was in a in a bedroom late at night on Beaumont Road in Plymouth. And I read this and it scared the life out of me. I was, it, it disturbed me for a couple of days, which, wow. you know, I don't get that reading Lovecraft anymore. I mean, I... I admire the stories and the writing. I think they're great, but I don't get that sense of horror from them. And this did freak me out. Uh, it really did. I think I think it was that, that... I don't know, it's hard to say what it was, but it was that gradual build-up of dread and then that reveal at the end. Um, and I think the... You know, it allowed my mind to sort of fill in some of the stuff along with the kind of um, the hints and so on. My mind sort of filled in some of the other bits. And then when you're told it was real, it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Hmm. And was hooked from that point on, really. And one thing Lovecraft mentions in this story as well, which I think is ripe with gaming potential, is the idea of ghoul changelings. So it's not just the fact that the ghouls come along, steal your children, and then raise them in their ghoulish ways. It's the fact that they replace them with one of their own children and put them in, in your family. And I, I, I think that's something that's just ripe you know, with potential for horror. Mm. You never know. Your next-door neighbour might be a ghoul. Mm. But it's just the idea of... You know, they, they, you know, your, your, your child has been acting a bit strangely and then, you know, you, you come in one day and find it eating the dog. Um, you know, it, it, it's, you know it, he or she has never shown any indication of this before, but you've got this, this toddler now, you know, who is, looks a bit like your child, but isn't quite right. Hmm. Um, that must be used as a scenario hook at some point. That's got to have been. 
Yeah, I mean, I've certainly used an element of that in another, yeah, in a scenario I've done, but that was more to do with uh, a changeling that actually grown up within a family and was an adult at this stage. What traditionally is a ghoul? Yeah, now Lovecraft invented a lot of the details of the ghouls in this story, but he certainly didn't invent the concept of ghouls. Uh, These are creatures that come out of Arabian mythology. Uh, They're a form of jinn that lurks in graveyards and and eats the dead. So there's a lot of parallels. Yeah. And also, one of the indicators of a ghoul, apparently, in, in the mythology, is the fact that they have cloven hooves. Hmm. Because in the story, there are several attributes that Lovecraft lists. So we've got a, a dog face, a sort of canine look to them. Yeah, now this the, the, this is something that he seems to have invented. Now, I think the creatures are described in mythology as having you know glowing eyes, potentially, or at least red eyes. But um, there, is, there is a reference to uh, ghouls in Arabian mythology riding dogs, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Not that big. Could the attributes that he lists, apart from the cloven hooves, could almost be a werewolf. They've got pointed ears, bloodshot eyes, drooling lips, mm. scaly claws, mould-covered body, and then half-hooved feet. Yeah, I mean, I, and certainly I think um, the way that they're used in Call of Cthulhu, you know, as, as a sort of humanoid monster in some ways does have parallels to the way werewolves are used in horror stories um particularly seeing you know as they've got that human origin and again in in going back to the arabian mythology you know the ghouls and those could actually pretend to be human could shapeshift into human forms well with the consume likeness yes yeah, no, I'm talking about that. in the original mythology. No, no, oh, but, yeah. you know, if you, if you transfer that into Call of Cthulhu. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I can remember playing a game with our keeper, Matt Not, Matt, mm-hmm. and um, there were ghouls in, that had used the consume likeness spell. I'm not sure you were in the game, actually. And um, I didn't know what they were in reality, you know, what they actually were, but when it changed into the ghoul, Matt just kind of described it as having canine features and so on. And I... I, I didn't actually, it didn't click to me that it was a ghoul because the way it behaved was kind of different. And also he had them moving kind of at really high speed. And, you know, we had guns, but we couldn't take them down. They, they would just move so quickly and they just seemed so powerful and they struck so fast. They were really deadly. Well, um, again, again, I mean, that's one of the things that makes them terrifying in Call of Cthulhu. It's, it's not just the resistance to guns. It's the fact that they get three attacks per round. Yeah. I mean, that, that is just dangerously fast. Yeah. It, it's offset by the fact that they have a 30% chance to hit you. So more times out of, out of 10 that they won't. But they still get three times at trying to do it. But I think, you know, there's nothing wrong in, in um, you know, upping some of their stats for a, for a scenario or something. If you want to make them kind mm. of uh, more powerful ghouls... Uh, or, or you know, or a one-off ghoul, or whatever that's just uh, really powerful. Then you know they could be really big, or they could be really fast and you know stronger and and higher stats. And just in terms of fear, they don't have to take big chunks out of your investigator. It's just the fact that they're jumping on you, and there's this flurry of attacks. I mean, you know, even if you don't end up being badly damaged by that, is terrifying. Mm-hmm. I suppose almost Gollum is almost like a ghoul. Hmm. 
in uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. When we're talking about the way he attacks and fights, it's, it's kind of like that. Yes, and the sort of pale, squatting figure that lives in darkness. Yeah. Just less canine features. But, sure, yeah. sure. Otherwise, the kind of the tone of the voice, definitely. And he's a, a hu- well, not a human, sorry, but, it, you know, he's, he's a, um, a, a character that has cha- almost like changed race. He's yeah. almost unrecognisable to what he once was. Yeah. So we want Andy Serkis most motion capturing Richard Upton Pickman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. If there ever was a big budget version of, of uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, that would be perfect. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, once again, we have new backers to thank. Uh, This is, well, (laughs) as I've said a number of times... We rely on on donations through Patreon to pay for our hosting costs and the other associated costs with putting this podcast out, our our bandwidth costs and so on. And um, you have all been incredibly generous. We have had a staggering number of backers over the the last 18 months or so since we started doing this. And we have a couple of new ones to thank today. So, you know, thank you again for, for making all this possible. Without your contributions, cloning Matt would be impossible. I know. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you, guys. Think of all the extra work you're about to get done, Matt. Yeah. Or just extra things Tiff will be able to find to fill my time with <laughs> on multiple <laughs> levels. <laughs> well, she is one of our backers, so there you go. Yeah, oh boy. <laughs> but this week, we have to thank Bill Henderson. Yes, thank you very much, Bill. Indeed. Thanks, Bill. Cheers. Cheers. And... And, 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 <laughs> as, as you will know if you are a regular listener, if someone is generous and foolish enough to back us at a $5 level, we literally sing their praises. Uh-oh. Well, I say literally because... And you say sing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was about to say, you know, that might be overstating things. We, we attempt to sing their praises. We, we are singing as meeping is to talking. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> talking of singing, we do have a friend or a couple of friends who have formed a, almost a, a Simon and Garfunkel of the role-playing world um, who are playing guitar and writing their own songs about role-playing games. Oh. Our friend Sarah and Kat. Yep. Um, again, I shall try to remember to put a link in the show notes. Now, they, they differ from us in one respect. They can sing. They can sing. And they can, yeah, they can actually make music. They can play guitar and they can sing. Yeah. And they write like meaningful lyrics. Have you not seen this, Matt? No. Oh, oh God, it's fantastic. Re- really, yeah. When I put the link in the show notes, go and take a look, Matt, because oh. you'll like this. Okay. But here's an alternative. <laughs> but today we're going to sing our thanks to Heather Poirier. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
As I got up a few weeks ago, I went downstairs and there was a knock at the door and a man bearing a curious cardboard tube handed it over to me and there, it was looking on each end. There are strange stars with symbols in them drawn on the, the ends of each end of the package and I was to pick it up and, and if I just give it a shake, Ooh, you might that, be able to hear it. That is an eldritch rattling. It's oh. about... 50 to 60 centimetres in length, if we're allowed to use such hideous <laughs> measurements you realize, anymore. They realised the guy who knocked at the door um, The door was just a postman. There's uh, nothing well, else about no, this. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> he did fly off on leathery wings. Oh. <laughs> so probably DHL or something. <laughs> it has a return address on it, and it is from our good friend, Frank Delventhal of Germany. It is carefully sellotaped closed, but he has bid us open it Live during the show. Are you sure that sellotape is just holding it closed and not sealing some ancient monstrosity in there? It would appear that... that the, I, yeah, it, I am slightly concerned that this tube has no right angles to end it. <laughs> it is the perfect prison for a hound of Tindalos. Oh, it's a puppy of Tindalos. It's not that big. Ah, there is writing <laughs> on the end. I can't quite make it out. Which is probably for the best. <laughs> Which part of what hang of relay don't you understand? Can ah, we... <laughs> old ones. Inside danger. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did warn you. I did warn you. <laughs> don't open dead inside. <laughs> okay, well I'm gonna break break the seal. <laughs> okay, here we go. What, what's that pouring out of the end of it now, <laughs> about, Paul? Ready? Matt is cowering at the moment. Cowering. I, I, I was worried that it was going to be one of those kind of exploding tentacles, like you Ooh. open a you open a tube and a boom. Right. Ah! There are there are those um, little polystyrene things which you know all they're, the really scatter around and never clear up. They, they, they're not meant to writhe like that though. Are <laughs> they? Really? But they are a suitably green colour. Oh, what's this? Oh. What is this? It's some kind of, uh, yes, German Cthulhu card game. Oh, yes, I am holding in my hand a box of cards titled... Uh, oh, there's loads more just fallen out. Carte Monstorum. And there's a, there's a handwritten manuscript. And we have... Uh, oh, posters. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Very nice oh, Lovecraft. Oh, wow, one. that is cool. Yeah. That's uh, a... a uh, a portrait of H.P. Lovecraft with um, that seems to be text made out in the of, background. Yeah, it seems to be made Words. out of a word cloud of probably of the text from The Call of Cthulhu looking at uh, Le Grasse ah, standing yes. out there. Yes. It's all dreams, definitely. And that appears to be one each. Oh, oh fantastic. Nice. It's a black background with the words being highlighted in a combination of purple and green. And Paul's grinning as he picks something off the floor. <laughs> I just pick something else up. I'm not sure what this is. <laughs> uh, I think you haven't seen it, Matt, yet. So no. let's just catch your initial reaction <laughs> as you observe this. But it's good. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, okay. What so, is this? So, so we, we have a handwritten letter that at the bottom of it has three bent nails. Yeah. Six-inch nails as well. Yeah. Not No, sorry, not six-inch. It's from Germany. <laughs> they're, uh, I don't know, they're like, yeah, 18 quite centimetre. long. 18 oh, yeah. centimetres? Uh, my dear friends of Jackson Elias, let me send you these posters and the cards for your pleasure. A thanks for your podcast... 
and a greeting of the... I'm not quite sure what that word is. Scott, perhaps you can... Yes, this is what you should do when you're reading myth Mythos Tomes. You just kind of get partway through and you go, hey, buddy, I can't quite make out what this word <laughs> is. Can you read that sentence and look at that ha picture? Haster. Yeah, what what say, is it? Say it a couple more uh, times. Yeah. I think it says German Lovecraft community. Ah, yes. So do you want to read that again from the top? <laughs> it sounds more fun this way. My dear friends of Jackson Elias, let me send you these posters and the cards for your pleasure. A thanks for your podcast and a greeting of the German Lovecraft community. Yours, Frank. And yes, three, there are three, three bent large nails. I, the only thing I can think that they possibly use for is if we have a stick and then we suspect um, we tie a bit of string to the end and use that as um, use that as a hook. <laughs> 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 I, I was wondering, I, I've seen Frank post a number of pictures on social media of the various uh, workouts that he does involving very heavy weights. And I'm just wondering if he's bent all those nails by hand. I wonder. Turned them into fish hooks. <laughs> <laughs> One each. And as if that wasn't enough, Frank has been fantastically generous and he's also sent <laughs> us a DVD to go with this, which again, we haven't unwrapped yet. Here we go. So I've, I've passed the package over to Matt. Ah, this one also has an elder Paul, sign on the back as well. Paul and I are now donning our paper masks. <laughs> and tinfoil hats. Sticky tape on the windows, just to make sure. <laughs> no, oh, that's the elder sign gone. <laughs> no if hope. only it were that easy. Right. Oh, we have another note as well. Ooh. So I'll leave this for Paul to translate. As... <laughs> Why do I get <laughs> Right, okay. Let me see. And the DVD is Shadow of the Unnameable. Oh, gosh, I've not it, even heard of that one. And it's signed. Oh. Marvellous. There was a film called oh. The Unnameable, though, right? Yeah, there, there was back in the oh, late 80s, early 90s. Well, there were two of them. Right. Um, but this looks like something much newer. Oh, it's got a bunch of um, awards from various film festivals. Yeah, the Well, this may go some way to explain it. Yeah. Dear good friends of Jackson Elias, please have fun with this Lovecraftian short film. If you like it, please get back in touch with me as the maker of The Shadow of the Unnameable has an upcoming movie that is based on a dream fragment of, of HPL. It would be a pleasure to introduce you to the director, maker of this movie, so you may have... Sorry, I'm reading the handwriting here. Uh, so you may have him one day as a guest. Fantastic. We'll let you know what we think, Frank, um, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, so am I. Mm. This looks fantastic. Thank you again, Frank. You have been fantastically generous. Indeed. Thank you very, very much. And now it's time for... Ask Jackson. Now, if you need reminding here... We are the earthly vessels of Jackson Elias. And if you have any pressing questions about metaphysical or existential problems that you're facing, we can petition Jackson on your behalf and see what wisdom he has to offer you from beyond the veil. This episode, our question comes from our listener, Paul Lawrence, who writes to us, Dear Jackson, a close friend of mine, Tarquin, is considering going on a package holiday, but is too shy to ask for your advice. Here is a relevant part of his email. 
and I have received a 20% off voucher from my local travel agent, Starkweather Moor, for an interesting holiday to Singapore. I have even had dreams about how wonderful it will be. The trip has the quirky name of At the Manatees of Madness. And please find attached the pamphlet I have received. So, dear Jackson, what do you think? Is that really a manatee? I am concerned for my friend Tarquin. And he does indeed include an, uh, an illustration which shows a photograph of a uh, uh, said pamphlet or board advertising manatee madness. And which, what, uh, with a picture of what purports to be a manatee. It looks but, too cute. Well, that's well, a kind I, of cuddly manatee. Yeah, I don't know. I think we should look deeper into this picture because if you take a look, at first glance it looks like it's eating some kind of fronds. But are those really fronds that it's ingesting or are those things protruding from its mouth? Or are they fingers? It could could like, be a liver or something. Or, or, or it could be tentacles sprouting from its face. So we're left with two choices there, and it is either a flesh-eating monstrosity or it is some eldritch horror from beyond time and space. Well, I, I suppose it could be a manatee, but that's pretty unlikely. It's cute and fluffy. It's got to be a manatee. No. No, no, no. You're, 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 falling, you're falling for this. Oh, Tiff, oh, used, Tiff used to play with them uh, from uh, when she was growing up in Florida. They used to come out of, they used to come out of the river there. They, yes. Wait a minute. They used to come out of the river? Well, at least the heads anyway, about oh, okay. the only thing that did come out. And they're not fluffy. Well, they look cute. They're, they're, cuddly. they're the kind of things they're I could cute and cuddle cuddly. quite happily before they yeah. take me off to the Deep One Masters. Yeah. Yes, but, but the mistake you're making is those were real manatees, and you're assuming that any manatee that's being described in this pamphlet is a similar creature. These, these so-called mad manatees, or madness-inducing manatees, are, are obviously something really quite different. Especially considering they've got a nice, cute smile on their faces, they're eating their little intestines or whatever it is they're eating. Mm. So, yes, I mean, obviously that is the first note of caution. Just because something purports to be a manatee doesn't mean it is. In fact, if it actively tells you that it's a manatee, that's a pretty good indication that it's not. I would also be very, very wary about any package holidays from Starkweather Moor. I mean, they have been going for quite some time, but their expeditions in the 1920s and 30s... Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I haven't heard too many positive reports from them. In fact, anything about their uh, expedition to the South Pole, apart from the fact that everyone just everyone came back, just kept saying Starkweather's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you do tell us that Tarquin has been dreaming of this holiday. Now, obviously, dreams can be fairly innocuous things, except of course they never are. I mean, the fact that you've mentioned it means that it's significant, and you know, this dream is unlikely to be from a wholesome source i mean you know the obvious candidates are that either you know cthulhu himself has been beaming the dreams into your your sleeping friend's mind and that perhaps you know the manatees that he's been seeing in these dreams are in fact you know the 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 denizens of the dead city of really swimming around but I, I i think it's more likely that he is connected somehow with the famed manatees of the dreamlands I mean, these manatees are not like normal manatees. Apart from anything else, they walk on land. They walk on land? They walk on land. Which is a pretty sinister thing. I mean, if you're there in the forest, just lying there, minding your own business, and all of a sudden you hear this slapping, honking noise coming towards you... We had very much this experience in the Lamentations of the Plain Princess game. Mm. Just the other week, Scott, did we not? 
Yeah. Uh, when uh, our friend Ollie was running, what's it called? Land of the Lost. It came to me in a vision. Land of the Lost by Raphael Chandler, who interviewed on an earlier show. And indeed, we were a team in Africa, not Singapore, but uh, where, where was it we were, Scott? Which country? Nigeria. Nigeria, yes. Renowned for its manatees. Well, you say that, but in the middle of the night, we heard something coming through the undergrowth and we got up. And there was indeed something coming through the dark. We could just catch a glimpse of it by the light of the fire. We ask Ollie, what is it, this hideous creature? It's, looks at book, a manatee. That well-known big fish. <laughs> and I think the warning here is, whatever it is that's out there that put this idea into Raphael's mind or possibly instilled it further into Ollie's is, is probably not a wholesome source. And if your friend Tarquin is also dreaming of manatees, this is not a good sign. On the other hand, we did discover they're pretty tasty. Oh, yeah. Oh, poor little thing. I wouldn't eat mm. one of them. Oh, it can't beat a good manatee kebab. Oh. They're too cute and fluffy. They're not fluffy. Okay, to wrap things up, what did we make of Pikmin's model? I really enjoyed it. So it was nice, short, packed a punch, had a lot going for it. The fact that there are those little, as you've called, clues about what's going on all the way through it. And that it is a real departure from Lovecraft's normal style. Not just style, but content. Now, I, I, I want to just jump in here. Because we know, as if you're a regular listener, you'll know we've talked about numerous stories from H.P. Lovecraft. And you'll know the true measure of a story now is answered by one question. Matt, <laughs> how many times did you fall asleep while you were reading it? Twice. <laughs> well, 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 to be fair, it is four and a half thousand words long, Matt. You know, I mean, that, that's a lot to get through in Yeah, the annotated version is like 20 pages with pictures. I st 20 pages is still a long. With no. pictures and footnotes. The first time I tried reading it, I, it was about half one in the morning, okay? I was really tired. I got a few pages in, I blacked out. The, last, the second time I tried it, again, it had been a long day. I got to about five paragraphs in the end without realising there was one more page afterwards and fell asleep. <laughs> I'm picturing like Grandpa Simpson being given the book and he's like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this one has a two-sleep rating for me. Really yeah, good. <laughs> I, I, I am hereby diagnosing you with prose-induced narcolepsy, Matt. <laughs> one day we'll reach the ultimate Lovecraft tale that will keep Matt awake all the way through. I, ironically, it's going to be Dream Quest of Unknown to Dance. Yeah. <laughs> I've read that. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, we, we touched upon this a moment ago. I mean, this is a very unusual Lovecraft story as well in that it doesn't really have any of the things that people associate with Lovecraft, or at least not many of them, in that this isn't a tale of the cosmic, this isn't um, this isn't something transcendent, this isn't rooted in dreams. This is as straightforward a horror story, really, as Lovecraft ever wrote. Yeah, as we're discussing it, it really occurs to me that it doesn't have that sense of cosmic wonder. Um, the, the kind of It's the similar length tale to the music of Eric Zahn, and it's, you know, it's, it's not that... that 
it's not that different. It's it's in a, it's in a remote yeah. location that that can't be found again in a you know in a in a street well, an um, encounter with a strange artist. Yes, and there's a kind of a, a reveal at the end, a kind of revelation, and like you say, an artist. Um, but with music of Eric Zahn, there's a there's a whole unknown that it sort of opens up, and what were the themes really about, and what was beyond the window, and all that. Here, we you know it's. It's almost like the fact that it's shown to us, we almost see the photograph there in black and white showing us what the real thing was. And yeah, there's a sense of wonder about these tunnels and where the ghouls come from and so on. But um, as you say, it's, it's a more straightforward tale. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly this is one of the stories that I recommend to new Lovecraft readers because I think it's one of his most accessible stories. Yeah, definitely. Maybe I was just... I mean, that was just fortuitous mm. that it was my first one. Yeah, it, it doesn't have the weight of that connected mythos. It's almost like a really, a really odd metaphor. It's almost like a cul-de-sac that it's only got the one direction that you can go in. And that would that ultimately could lead you on to Dream Quest, but you don't have to suddenly think, well, what's this reference to Azathoth or Cthulhu and mm. so on, that it is very self-contained. Yes, I mean, obviously Dream Quest opens all that up, but you know, none of that is present here in this story. Well, that wraps it up for Richard Upton Pickman until perhaps a future episode when he'll crop up again. So until then, it's a glibbering good night from me. It's a necrophagist cheerio from me. And it's a me 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 farewell from me. Hello. BlasphemousTomes.com Painting, painting! <laughs>